does make a big difference standing up front here to seeing a spread of chairs uh, occupied by people. And as Ajabu said earlier on, really great to see so many of you back this morning. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the good news, but AJ and Avon this past week uh, were blessed with a baby boy by the name of Andrew. So if you haven't heard, I think we rejoice with them. We give thanks to God. We congratulate them. Uh, and I'm sure they are delighted enjoying the uh, addition to their family. But I do want us to turn to the scriptures now. And uh, this morning, Exodus chapter 2. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, well-known passage, but certainly I think a passage that we could learn uh, a great lesson from or lessons. And so follow with me in your Bible. I'm going to read from verse 1, and we're going to consider verses 1 through to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, the, to bathe at the river while a young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. Uh, just so far, uh, God's word. Lord, we thank you again for the scriptures today. And Lord, we pray that your word would prompt in us a stronger trust and faith in you. As we learn, Lord, from those who have gone before. Uh, as we learn, Lord, from that which you have preserved for us by your spirit in your word. But Lord, acknowledging this morning that we are dependent on your Spirit, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would convict and he would lead and encourage each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce our passage this morning by thinking about a young woman that falls pregnant. Young woman that falls pregnant. And in her particular situation, she is encouraged to reach a decision and then to proceed with the termination of a pregnancy. I think any one of us here this morning would understand that that must be an extremely difficult and painful process, a painful decision to live with. And uh, I think deep down, deep down, each mother knowing that her baby is a real person. I can't imagine the depth of emotional distress 
uh, for this kind of young woman, perhaps even an older woman, uh, vulnerable at that particular time, impressionable, wanting advice, wanting guidance, and then eventually reaching that place of being willing to dispose of her own flesh and blood. This is common practice today if you uh, are in touch with uh, news, not only in our own country but across the world, uh, abortions are uh, happening, uh, not in their tens, not in their thousands, but in their tens of thousands uh, in instances all over the place. But what I want us to think about this morning is despite assurances that might be given to uh, such a person, such a woman, that it doesn't matter. Because that's what people are saying, you know, the health of a woman's body and it doesn't matter and it's okay and you'll get over this and, 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 and don't listen to what other people are saying. I'm convinced that, that this kind of decision weighs heavily on that young woman's mind, even for the rest of her days. Now, having said that this morning, that situation, that particular predicament, that kind of weight that, that falls on, on the shoulders of a woman, that's painful. When a woman reaches a decision of willingly, emphasis on the word there, willingly disposes of her baby. That being so, can you imagine the ache for a mother whose baby is forcefully removed from her by government and drowned in a river? Can you imagine, imagine in the South African context, we have a government at a particular time that decides that all male children are to be drowned, all male babies born are to be killed. I can't imagine I don't want to imagine, I don't ever want to be, I'm sure you don't ever want to be in a situation where we are a witness to little helpless infants made in the image of God with all the potential of life before them have life choked out of them. I think the only thing worse than thinking about that is actually witnessing that and seeing your own child being grabbed from your arms and drowned like an unwanted rat. I share that introduction this morning, leading to my first point this morning, that at times, some people experience indescribable pain. We cannot, we must not underestimate the pressure that these Hebrews faced under the government of that particular day. Last week we looked at some of these, and I'll just remind you the taskmasters afflicted them with heavy burdens. It was hard labor for them. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves, made them to be less than human beings. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in a climate where temperatures are high where there isn't much moisture and coolness that comes to even relieve their situation. And that's not all. Not long thereafter, the order to the midwives. Chapter 1 and verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, you shall let, she shall live. And that not even enough. 
when that was not effective enough in reducing the Hebrew population by the, the leader, the leaders of that particular government, further action is taken, uh, policy is implemented, verse uh, 22 of chapter 1, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Having said that, I also need to remind you, when I speak of the Hebrews, these are the people of God. This is not just some uh, group of people somewhere uh, out there. These are the people of God, and they therefore must have been at their wit's end in the midst of what could be only described as indescribable pain. How, how, can you, how can you even begin to understand or feel what they must have been feeling? They must have been absolutely desperate and helpless and confused. So the dilemma. I want us to think about this as we continue even on from last week, they were recipients of the promises of God. They had a heritage, a wonderful heritage. Looking back over the, uh, the nations, where Abraham, at least God had spoken to Abraham and given him a promise of for him and succeeding generations. Wow, what a legacy, what a, what a heritage. They were recipients of the promises of God. And yet now they were being trampled underfoot, recipients of brutal and merciless injustice and persecution. That being then... Among us here at Central, there are people of God, people who've experienced that personal touch of the Holy Spirit in bringing them to the place of being born again, people of God that have been included into His family who are currently feeling indescribable pain. You may be one of those. And I want you to listen. I want us all to listen this morning. You may be one who feels like the world is against you and secretly wondering if God has abandoned you. Now, there are two categories that I want to raise this morning as we think about this dilemma. There may be those among us, there are those among us who feel distress because of them being brought, their circumstances being brought about beyond their control. It's not, they're not the cause. They haven't done anything. They haven't caused it. It's, it's happened to them. Let me give you some examples. Do you know that we have some young adults in our church who have slogged very hard in pursuing a degree at the university here down the road from us, eventually graduating and finding themselves sitting at home? No work. No prospect, no job, nothing they can do other than keep applying, hoping that there might be something somewhere. The others in our congregation, perhaps at a slightly older generation, who find themselves stuck in a position at work with no prospect of promotion. Nothing they can do, even if they're good at what they are, are, are doing, if they're the best at what they're doing, they're simply overlooked and disregarded. Stay where you are. And then there are others, even in the workplace, who are identified as 
fundamentalist Christians or, or radical in religion and, and therefore marginalized or squeezed out to the edge of not only uh, life in the workplace but also social life in community. So there, and the other circumstances as we represented, uh, represent the community here this morning. But then we can also add to that another category. Your agony may be because of personal crises beyond your control. So circumstances, there oftentimes there's nothing we can do. But often we also feel that personal crises also beyond our control. There are those who are suffering with terminal illness. There's nothing they can do visit the doctors, have the best kind of treatment, but very often finding that their treatment is ineffective. There are others who are facing what I would call the disintegration of the family, where one spouse or the other spouse has simply given up on loyalty to husband or wife and, and children, and experiencing the, the rejection and fragmentation and the brokenness of divorce. Then there are others who experience tremendous emotional difficulty in depression, grief. So realistically, the, the point I'm trying to make as we uh, unpack this particular passage today, unless Jesus returns, you and I can expect more indescribable pain, either happening to ourselves or witnessing it happening to those around us and, and leading us to the place where we are tempted to ask questions, difficult questions, awkward questions. But I want to move on encouragingly, I hope, and see that sometimes, secondly, sometimes people have incredible faith. Indescribable pain, yes, it's real, it happens. But in the midst of that, and, and, and certainly as we read this passage this morning, people sometimes have amazing faith. Looking at our passage this morning, you'll notice that there's no direct mention of faith. If you look again at the passage, there's no direct mention of God in these verses that I read this morning. But... These parents, we are told, had faith. We are told that in the book of Hebrews. Looking back, interpreting Scripture, interpreting as the Holy Spirit led, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, faith is something that we get, not because of wishful thinking, but faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God. So we can definitely conclude that these parents were not just the optimistic or enthusiastic type. They were not just positive thinkers in a difficult circumstance of life. They had faith, which means they believed what God had said. They responded to the word of God. They were not afraid of the king's scheme. Now let's think about their, their faith and the response to the word of God. In a general sense, because they belonged to the community of faith, because they were part of the people of God, 
because they had this heritage that God had uh, already promised to, to Abraham, they knew that God had spoken repeatedly that he would deliver them from slavery, that he would take them back to Canaan. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of, of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So looking forward, knowing that there would be a time, that they were told there would be a time that they would be in the midst of, of this injustice, God would deliver them. Well, the promise is repeated again in a general sense to them as the people of God in Genesis 26.3 and 35.12. So these are not just uh, obscure verses. Genesis 46 verse 4 and, and 20, uh, 48 verse 2. There's also that well-known instance uh, with Joseph. Uh, remember Joseph uh, telling them uh, in Genesis 50, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, now do you get the point? General promises from God to his people that they could respond to by faith. But there's something more here, and you'll see why I say this later. These parents have something more. They have something specific from God. Now, we're not, not told in this passage exactly what they were told, when they were told, how they were told. None of that is given us. But at the time of Moses' birth, they already knew that he was no ordinary child. Why? Have a look at Exodus 2 verse 2. The woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw that he was a, there's a, there's a word there, significant word, a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now some translations use, this, use the word beautiful child, others use the word goodly child. The, the, the sense of the word is that there was something that they knew about this child that conveyed a sense that he was not ordinary. Very important that, that they saw that. There must have been, at some point in time, a special word, a special revelation from God about this child who would be used as an instrument in a special way to bring about the promised deliver, deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Now, I'm going to speculate now, and I'm just going to leave that for you to think about. Uh, the thought that came into my mind was from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says that in the past, God spoke to our fathers in different ways at different times, uh, and in these last days, He speaks to us through His Son. So God spoke to them somehow, and that's why they were able to have this incredible faith. This child would be raised to fulfill a specific role in the unfolding purposes of God. So when they faced the situation that was rationally and logically seemingly not possible, they believed God. They did not believe uh, what their minds and perhaps what other people were saying to them, telling them that there was no hope for their son's survival. I want to add there that we must note that their faith uh, did not remain passive. 
I think sometimes we today uh, uh, have a notional sense of faith. They acted. They did something. Their faith moved them to do something. Instead of taking him as far away from the Nile as possible, they, they made a little basket. They hid him among the reeds. And, and we read in the third verse, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds uh, by the riverbank. Do you, you, you see how they entrusted their little child to God in the most dangerous place? They believed God. They believed His Word. And, and his sisters stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Your faith should never be alone. And what I mean by that, we can't just say we have faith. There needs to be a demonstration of, of faith in, in standing on the, on the Word of God, standing on the promises of God, standing on the revelation of God. And so these parents who were in pain, like some of us here today, maybe some of you in days ahead, they did something. But at the same time, they were trusting God. They did what they could in the circumstances, but they then backed off, leaving their little one in the hands of God. It's a difficult step to take. Many of us confess that reaching the point of simply trusting God, simply trusting God, that's the, that's the theme of this message this morning. Do you trust God? Do you entrust your family to God? Do you entrust yourself to God? See, what is it about God that made these parents back off and wait? Yes, by trusting God, they based, uh, it was based on what he had promised, what they knew would extend beyond what the king was decreeing, uh, and in fact, even what the king was exercising in cruel saver, uh, slavery. They believed what I tried to teach last week is that God is always redemptively at work among his people. Which leads me to my third point. The invisible, purposeful hand of God is always at work. Yet today, in my life and, and your life, as the people of God. You see, what we need to stand back and think about is how we interpret life. Sometimes we can quote verses from Scripture. Sometimes we even have a theology that we hold in our minds. But we don't allow it, or we don't believe that it really governs the way we think and interpret and respond to God. And to analyze that, I want us to think about the fact that whether you know it or not, you sit here today thinking, as you think about life, as you think about the world around you, the conclusions you reach are determined or influenced by the spectacles you're wearing. All of us have got spectacles. The tint of your spectacle lenses is determined by your particular world view. Have you thought about that? You have a world view. Whether you know it or not, you have a world view. And your world view is, is the way that you interpret, the way you understand every circumstance and every event of history. Now there are two types of spectacles that I want to raise uh, for us to think about this morning. The one set of spectacles makes you see everything as mere chance. Chance. Everything is chance. So the people who are in government is mere chance. 
The fact that the princess came down to the water that day was mere chance. The fact that the parents just happened to put him in the water at that particular time was just good luck, and the princess had a favorable, uh, was in a favorable mood. And, 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 and that kind of worldview uh, leads people into thinking and acting and seeing every day as strokes of good luck and self-effort. So are you having good luck? Or you're having bad luck. That's the one worldview that many people adopt. The other type of spectacle helps you to see that in everything God has a plan. That God has not removed some distance uh, away, looking on helplessly, uh, desperately hoping that the dice will fall on the right number. No. God is intimately involved, orchestrating and coordinating and, and moving the course of history to accomplish His every purpose. And so if we look at this passage this morning, deciding which spectacle or which set of spectacles we want to interpret it from, look at the kind of, uh, uh, looking at this passage begs the question, was Moses simply a recipient of a stroke of good luck? Was it simply good fortune and parental ingenuity that saved his skin? Or was it the sovereign, purposeful hand of God guiding and governing the universe, working out all that is decreed in this world that he continues to sustain? Different worldviews, different views of God. Moses in the basket in the river of death. The sister standing at a distance watching. The daughter of Pharaoh coming to bath at the time, at that time, at that place. The princess seeing the basket just then, taking pity on that particular child. The princess's openness to the sister's suggestion. I want to urge you this morning. If you think life is all about luck, Learn from the Scriptures. Receive from the Holy Spirit a change of the tinting of your spectacles. If this incident that we consider today is all pure chance, then we have no hope. But if it is the invisible, purposeful hand of God, then we have much to look forward to. And so I'm going to choose, I have chosen, the second set of spectacles, and I've called it the providence of God. Well-known concept, we've spoken of this before in our church. Where God sees beforehand, God has decreed salvation history. God has decreed His purposes to be accomplished. And so as God works, and now don't, don't forget who God is. All-powerful. He is indescribably great. We can't even begin to imagine how God works and, and, and how He brings things about. He, but He goes ahead and He prepares things so that all things fit into His purposes. And those of us who are children of God are included in those redemptive purposes. It's providence. God seeing ahead, planning accordingly. No matter what. The reality is, if you prefer the chance lens, 
and we're simply at the mercy of good luck and the people around us, man, you need to get ready for a life of despair and a life of regret. But if you believe the Bible and where the providence lands with God in control, there's a sense of settled peace. I don't understand everything. I would do things in my particular opinion and view differently. But we know who God is. We know that He's all wise. We know that God is good. We know that He's powerful. We know that He's decreed certain purposes. So we rest in that. Our Father knows better. Joseph reminded his brothers of this truth even in the midst of intentions of evil. I'm your brother. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. Remember them wanting to kill him and then they threw him in a pit and then they sold him off to a caravan of people moving on. They didn't take the lesson. Many Christians don't learn the lesson. And so he has to repeat it to them in chapter 50. Do not fear for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And not just Joseph. The great example that we must never, ever forget is Jesus and his death on the cross. It's an example, a demonstration of God's invisible, purposeful hand at work. There were the Pharisees, and there was Herod, and there was Pilate, and, and there was Judas, and, and there were the soldiers, and, and they thought that they were orchestrating an unfolding history, and they certainly will be responsible, and were responsible, and will be responsible for their decisions and actions. But read Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The worst they could do was bringing about the redemptive purposes of God. So I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are as a believer, whatever you're facing as a person who belongs to God, as a child of God, whatever you may still face in your life is not just the luck of the draw. It's not just statistical probability. God is at work. And it's the foundation, it's the undergirding of why we can quote a verse like Romans 8, verse 28. This is not pious platitude. This is, this is the consequential truth of the reality of the invisible hand of God at work. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I could end the sermon there, but I'm not going to because I want to be true to the passage. What about the other parents who did not see their precious little boys saved? Watching them being drowned or killed at birth. And so my next point, asking the hard question. You see, I don't want us to leave here today having the impression that all you need in the midst of your indescribable pain is a dash of incredible faith and all will be well. That's not true. An honest consideration of this event, Exodus chapter 2, 
sees that Moses was the exception. He was not the rule. Moses was saved from death, and many other infants were killed. Well, let me give you some examples of what I observe in life today. Here and there, Christians, missionaries as well, have escaped persecution. If you follow anything of church history, if you read what has happened since the beginning of gospel ministry after the ascension of Jesus, yes, here and there, Christians escape persecution. But many, many, not tens, not thousands, tens of thousands, have been burnt at the stake, have been left to rot in a prison, or like Stephen, remember Stephen in Acts chapter 6 or 7, 7, stoned to death? What about John the Baptist? In the prime of his life, had his head taken off, decapitated, and delivered on a platter. What about those things? Here and there, a barren woman bears a child. My observation is most remain fertile, infertile, and childless. Not every Christian woman who wants to fall pregnant falls pregnant. Here and there, someone is miraculously healed from a terminal disease. And again, my observation here at Central Baptist Church and their family sitting here this morning who have gone through this, the death of a loved one, the diagnosis of cancer, that terrible road. Here and there, yes, healing. Most have died. Cancer has taken their life. Here and there, elderly people stay well to the end. But again, take a walk through the frail care unit at Glenhaven. And you will notice that many have to endure a long struggle of incapacity and discomfort. Here and there, an unemployed man or woman gets a job. Many remain unemployed and desperate. Now, now folk, what do you do with that? What, what, what do you do with that? As a Christian who believes in the providence of God, what, does that does change the truth about God? Does it change the truth about God's good purposes for those who believe? Now, I want to show you this morning, it doesn't. It doesn't. You and I can entrust ourselves to God. There's a foundation, knowing that His ways are above our ways. That I've said repeatedly, you know it, and, and you, but we've got to believe it. We've got to understand it. God's ways are not our ways. Knowing that His ways are not our ways in a context where He's the all-powerful, all-wise, good God. It's not going to make mistakes. It doesn't miss something. So not all the babies were saved. So what can we conclude from that? God has a different purpose for different people. John the Baptist, his leg of the race lasted 30 plus years, early 30s, and it ended. His purpose was complete. Different purposes for different people. Your leg of the race may be longer than my leg of the race. My leg of the race here on earth 
determined by God. All the days ordained for you, written my book before one of them came to be. But you see, regardless of different purposes for different people at different times, we can be assured, we must be assured that God kept every promise He made to these people. He did raise up a deliverer. God did establish them back in Canaan. God did raise another like Moses to be the Savior of the world. The unfolding of redemptive history, providing the Lamb of God for sinners like me and you. How do we find comfort then in the midst of our pain? Like the psalmist, I believe we need to know that at the end of the day, it's not health or longevity. How many ungodly men and women have you seen live to be 90 plus? Many. It's not health. It's not longevity. It's not wealth. It's not trouble-free living that constitutes goodness. Now, here's the issue that constitutes goodness. Knowing and being known by God. That's what counts. That's what counts. Knowing and being known by God. The psalmist learned this lesson, got all distressed and, and got himself in such a knot because he was looking around and he thought the world was such an unjust place until he came to terms with being in the presence of God and learning this lesson that he states in verse 25 of Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I deserve, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. And folk, can I say your flesh and heart will fail? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There is an era of existence here, however long, and there is an eternal era of existence. When the earthly tent you live in where, uh, is destroyed, you have a building from God. You need to believe the Scriptures, understand the Scriptures. Knowing and being known by God places you in a position with indescribable eternal prospects. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for this light, light doesn't mean it doesn't feel, it feels terrible. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so as I conclude this morning, and, and I'm preaching to myself as much as I preach to you, can God be trusted in the midst of your circumstances when those circumstances and crises are beyond your control? And I want to assure you this morning, from what I understand from the Scriptures of who God is, the way God is operating, the way God is unfolding His redemptive purposes, God can be trusted. Definitely. But there's a condition. If Jesus is your Savior, if you're included into the people of God, into the family of God, then you can stand squarely and firmly on that promise that things working together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that good which we may only see in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for each and every person here. Lord, those who are at the moment in the midst of 
hardship and questioning and pain. Oh, Lord, that they being known by you and them knowing you, the Spirit, your Spirit at work in them, won't you, Lord, witness with their spirits just afresh that they belong to you, that you are their God, and you, Lord, are their Father, and they are your child. Pray for those in the future, Lord. I pray for younger people, that you would prepare them for life. We so often, Lord, there are unexpected bends in the road. None of us, Lord, know exactly what tomorrow will bring. But thank you, Lord, that we need not panic, that we know that you know, that you are providentially at work, Lord, in all contexts. Sometimes what we would even understand to be dark providences, always knowing your gracious and invisible hand. And so be with us. Bless us as a people, Lord. We are a needy people. Lift us up, encourage us, and may we leave here today entrusting ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.